0: Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together your favorite former Department of Justice officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day, including the investigations of President Trump and his circle. Today, the four-page cryptic letter from Bill Barr to the Congress and the non-decision by special counsel Robert Mueller on potential obstruction of justice charges by President Trump. Finally, we'll talk about what, if anything, is now left open to decide. I'm Harry Litman. I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General, and also an Assistant United States Attorney or LINE Prosecutor. Today, I'm joined by Barbara McQuaid. She's now a professor at the University of Michigan, but she was for eight years the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and for many years before that, an assistant U.S. Attorney. How how long were you in AUSA, Barb?
1: 12 years, Harry, and I find that experience to be more relevant even than the experience as U.S. attorney, being a line prosecutor.
0: And did you pretty much cycle through all the uh, different divisions in the Eastern District, or were you focused on one in particular?
1: Well, I started in our general crimes unit doing a whole host of all kinds of miscellaneous cases, but I spent most of my time as an AUSA in the national security unit, focusing on those kinds of cases.
0: Uh, with Barb and me is Mimi Roca, who you've seen many times on MSNBC, as you have Barb. She's now a distinguished fellow in criminal justice at Pace Law School. Before then, you were also for many years an assistant U.S. attorney in a sleepy office in, uh, on the East Coast. Where were you and and. How long were you there?
2: I was at this uh, place called the Southern District of New York. You may or may not have heard of it. And I was there for a total of 16 and a half years. I got to oversee all different kinds of cases from organized crime, narcotics, white collar, some national security to gangs.
0: In a episode soon to come of Talking Feds, by the way, we will sit down with several members of the Southern District of New York, including Mimi, to try to talk a little bit more about the special qualities and mystique of that office. Okay. Well, we are now in the wake of a very dramatic, but also odd juncture in the special counsel probe, or or perhaps on the other side of the end of the special counsel probe, but Bill Barr has sent this letter to Congress detailing the supposed principal conclusions from the Mueller probe. And that's all that's been sent to date a, a short letter laying out conclusions, both on the so called collusion side and also the obstruction of justice side. I'd, I'd like to zero in for now on the obstruction of justice side because. As former AUSAs, I think we have something unusual on our hands. That's my first question. Bob Mueller, we're told by Attorney General Barr, did a painstaking investigation into obstruction of justice charges and simply decided not to reach a decision or a recommendation. When you heard that, Barb, how unusual did it strike you?
1: It struck me as exceptionally unusual. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, All of us have been involved in cases that were very high profile, where we probably provided notice to a higher decision maker if we were in AUSA, certainly to the U.S. Attorney, but even within Justice Department, if you had a very significant case, you might provide notice to the Attorney General, but you would at least give a proposed recommendation. You wouldn't say, well, here are all the facts, boss. I leave it for you to decide this case. Uh, you would make a proposal. You would say, "I recommend prosecution, or I recommend declination," and these are the reasons. Even if you plan to defer to their ultimate decision, it, it struck me as very strange to ask him to make the ultimate decision there.
0: Okay, um, Mimi, what are what are your uh, thoughts about how unusual this is?
2: So, I agree with Barb that it, it does seem very unusual if we look at it in the context of, you know, sort of normal prosecutions, let's call it, i.e. not where the president of the United States is the, or at least a subject um, and maybe target. Mueller was trying to punt the decision to Congress. And At first, I thought that was sort of not appropriate. I I was surprised, I mean, I still am surprised by it, but I was a little bit upset about it. The more I've thought about it, the more I think that I understand that, particularly if he found the question of obstruction of justice to be a close call, or even if he didn't, the fact that he knew that Trump couldn't be indicted on it because of the Office of Legal Counsel memo Uh, policy that he thought the evidence should be laid out and in the hands of Congress. And in fact, I believe that's what the independent counsel did in the case of Nixon. He didn't make a decision and he handed it to Congress once it was unsealed by the judge. What happened here and is really shocking is that going back to the football analogy, Barr came in and he intercepted or grabbed the football. And I'm not sure that's what Mueller intended. And that is what seems to me to be, you know, sort of the most inappropriate part of this.
0: Now, I want to go back to that in a second. I'll just add my two cents here about the un- how unusual it is to say unprecedented. I've never seen a case uh, in which you, a, the uh, office working it wouldn't not just have, but want to have a a strong stake they would in fact try to protect their own prerogative to make the decision they're the ones who have the sweat equity they've been up close to the evidence they really there's a reason that that they're in a better position they've been investigating it seen all the people in the grand jury and there they would be just it would be part and parcel of their professional role to if not make the decision to at least uh, weigh in and fight for it. So this uh, straddling here and throwing up one's hands is really, really perplexing and coming from no less a professional than Robert Mueller. It makes it triply so. We'll understand it one day, but right now we, we really don't. But I want to return to Mimi's point. So Mimi, you just said I think you either assumed or surmised what was going on as Mueller decided under the circumstances it should be left to Congress. Now, all we know from the bar letter is, well, these were hard issues of law and fact. Barb, do you agree that that the likely reason Mueller decided to uh, shrug his shoulders was the appropriateness of handing it off to the Congress or do you think there's potential other reason? Why do we think Mueller would have done this?
1: I don't know and that's why I think we are likely to see Congress asking or subpoenaing Robert Mueller and William Barr to come before them to answer these questions. I can't imagine that we've gone through this whole process of appointing a special counsel and the purpose of the special counsel is to give the public assurance that there's some insulation for the decision maker from the chain of command in the executive branch, that you've got somebody there that, whose opinion you can trust. And on the ultimate question, instead of deciding it himself, he hands it back to somebody who is in that executive branch chain of command. So it really seems inconsistent with the whole purpose of the special counsel laws. And so I think we are left to speculate that what he intended to do here was, as Mimi describes, uh, a roadmap for Congress he has demonstrated that he knows how to recommend a declination because he did that with regard to conspiracy. And so did he think that there's a pretty strong case here? If I could charge somebody, I would, but I can't. So I'm going to hand this off to Congress for them to decide what to do with it. That's a, a very logical assumption of what he was doing here. And I think the American people deserve to know the answer to that question of why did he punt on this question?
0: yeah, I mean, just to follow through, as you say, he knows what a declination is, and it's just axiomatic for a prosecutor. You try you know if you if you uh, reach a point where you cannot say, then I think you decline. That's that's sort of how it goes. that's that's what the burden is. But to reach that point and pronounce yourself in equipoise and then let it go. Is again both baffling and unprecedented. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to you, Mimi, because you're suggesting with with whatever sports analogy, essentially that Barr kind of crossed him up. Yes, I, I, we, we only recently learned. I mean, all of this is extremely recent, but we now find out that um, Mueller was out of the process for the scripting of the Barr letter. He wasn't consulted on it. Is it are you actually speculating or is it your best guess that, in fact, Mueller would have been surprised or, or Mueller made a particular recommendation to leave it up to Congress and Barr sort of on his own motion, just took it away and pronounced his own judgment? And if that's so, well, let me stop there. Is that your is, is that your best guess of what might have happened here?
2: Essentially, yes, based on what we know so far. And I mean, I'm obviously open to hearing a different scenario. Um, I have always said, as I think both of you, that when the end of the Mueller investigation comes, I will accept whatever Mueller has found and whatever conclusions he reaches. I still don't don't know what those are. And the same is true for for this issue that we're discussing. If Mueller, we learn that, you know, actually this is what he intended. I mean, obviously, but I think there's a couple of hints as to why I am am sort of going down this path. I mean, one is, as we've all been saying, this is so unprecedented. Two is just what we know about Bob Mueller. I mean, this is a person who for decades, both in, you know, military service and in public service, made hard decisions. This is what he took this mission on for. So I, I would find it surprising for him to say no, I'm just going to leave it to the political branch after all of this, meaning political appointees. And I'm just not going to make the decision because it's hard. There must have been some other motive behind it and other thinking. And the only other thinking that makes sense is this is a decision that Congress needs to weigh, not people within the executive branch and not even the special counsel. Um, and lastly, I, I look at the bar letter itself and it, it just has very strange language. I mean, it's a sort of passive voice. you know, it doesn't say the special counsel made these findings, didn't decide and asked us now it didn't have to, but it it says basically, because the special counsel did not make this decision, that leaves it to us to make to make this decision. It's just kind of strangely written. so. You know, all of that at least suggests to me that this is a real possibility that Mueller didn't know that Barr slash Rosenstein would, you know, make this uh, judgment call in the way that they did.
0: Yeah, and notice, of course, the whole scheme of the regulations. We are supposed to, if there's any instance in which the uh, higher up doesn't follow uh, what the special counsel wants to do, they're supposed to notify Congress. Now, we are at the end of the probe, but that certainly suggests that if Mueller wanted to go a certain way, uh, it would be both problematic and a matter to make sure Congress knew about if the uh, attorney general and deputy attorney general decided to go the in an, in a different direction, and what about what about you, Barb? If you agree that Mueller uh, was contemplating the decisions being left to Congress, so do you um, see Barr and Rosenstein going in as as a basically a usurping of Congress's role and a kind of um, rolling? Of uh, Mueller at the at the very last minute it's
1: hard to imagine that it came out that way. you know I've heard reports that uh, three weeks earlier, Robert Mueller told them that he would likely be uh, recommending or, or you know not reaching a conclusion. It's hard to imagine that they just um, surprised him with this and wrote this letter and announced it to the world without giving him a heads up and the same professional courtesy that he gave them. Um, you know, as a good soldier, perhaps he went along with it and uh, said, "It's you know, you're you're the boss; it's your call." What's interesting about this is we have this new special counsel regulation that's a little different from its predecessors, the independent counsel. And one of the criticisms of the independent counsel was some questioned its constitutionality because it created sort of a fourth branch of government. That was the uh, you know famous dissent by. Uh, Justice Scalia in the Morrison versus Olson case. But uh, this was designed to become more of a part of the Department of Justice so that the attorney general did have some oversight over the special counsel. But it leaves it, I think, in a very unsatisfying place because it appears that Barr may have the power to do this. And as someone who has expressed an opinion of a strong uh, view of executive power, he may have thought that he had not only the power, but also the responsibility to do this. And so I think until we see both of them before Congress and ask them these questions, it's going to be hard to know what Mueller's motives were, whether he intended to leave this for Congress and what Barr's motives were. I mean, did he intend to make this decision all along? If that's the case, then we didn't need a Robert Mueller. We just needed a bunch of FBI agents reporting directly to to William Barr.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, and of course, yes, we, we're we talking about these two, but there is a third person involved here. And I think uh, we should, we're, we're short of time on this topic, but let's close it out with both whatever final thoughts you have, but also in particular, what about Rod Rosenstein here? You can maybe point to, you can note of Bill Barr. He doesn't have prosecutorial experience. You can note of him. Some would suggest maybe more of a political Attachment to either the party or the president, but he's joined here by Rod Rosenstein in this judgment, both on the merits that there's no obstruction and also just the decision to go ahead in the first place. We've, most of us know and have worked with Rod. How does that go into the calculus in your mind about what might have happened uh, here, starting with you, Mimi?
2: Well, I mean, it it gives me more pause. I mean, in the sense uh, that, Pause the other way. Pause about what I've been saying about this sort of being um, hijacked by Barr. I mean, I have had faith in Rod as a public servant, as someone who was trying to do whatever the law and the facts dictated and not a political person. You know, somebody driven by politics here, as, as I do view Barr. So the fact that he seems to have changed his mind and stayed on, assuming the reporting is correct, in order to be part of what Barr was doing here is significant. But he didn't sign the letter, which, you know, he could have. Uh, He still has a position there if he was really sort of part of this. So it's all just very puzzling. And and I think, you know, as Barb said at the beginning of all this, the process here, it's not just that I think we need to see the Mueller report because of its substance, but also because we, I think, deserve to understand the process here and how this came about. Barb, thoughts
0: especially about Rod Rosenstein?
1: Yeah. You know, I know and worked with Rod and think very highly of him as a person of integrity and great professionalism. And throughout this investigation, I think he has handled himself uh, very well, appointing the special counsel, defending him throughout. But I, I have to say that his uh, unless we learn more at the moment, I, I kind of feel like his legacy is a little bit tarnished and is bookended by two things. One, his le- his memo recommending the firing of Jim Comey. And then the end here where he was at least complicit with William Barr in taking this matter out of the hands of Congress or Robert Mueller and making this decision themselves. And so I guess it leaves me wanting to know more uh, to understand what was motivating Rod Rosenstein to think that that was the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. Well, it certainly does illustrate the deputy attorney general job is, is one of the very toughest in government. I, I look. I have been more than others from having worked with him, uh, respectful of the of Attorney General Bar. But I I certainly join both of you in seeing that something doesn't add up. Maybe even has a bad odor to it. And there's an absolute urgency for us to to find out the the truth. Until then, this notion that things are sort of closed seems just false. We don't. It, all we have is a declaration and not, not what you need in the law, you know, reasoning and facts. Okay, that's all we have time for on this topic, though it's going to be playing out intensely over the next few weeks. Now it's time for the feature on Talking Feds that we call Sidebar, in which we give you some basic information about a really important concept in federal prosecutorial practice, And we do so with the help of an interesting, sometimes even famous person from another field. Today, we are really fortunate to have the artist Lori Anderson, who's going to provide information about the relationship between U.S. attorneys in offices around the country and the power uh, bureaucracy or structure at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C.
3: What is the relationship between U.S. Attorneys and Maine Justice? The Department of Justice, headed by the Attorney General, is responsible for law enforcement and policy in this country. The DOJ includes several divisions that litigate criminal and civil matters and determine legal policy. These divisions are sometimes informally referred to as Maine Justice after the DOJ headquarters building in Washington, D.C., The U.S. attorneys are the chief lawyers for the U.S. government in each federal jurisdiction, but their work is overseen by the Attorney General of the United States, and they are expected to follow all of Maine Justice's policies. A given case may be prosecuted by attorneys from Maine Justice, a U.S. attorney's office, or both working together. But no matter who is litigating the case, the rules and procedures established by Maine Justice govern. The Southern District of New York, or SDNY, has historically been given considerable leeway in determining which matters to focus on and what steps to take in a given case. Because of its independent streak, the SDNY is sometimes affectionately referred to as the Sovereign District of New York.
0: Thank you very much to Lori Anderson. It's now time to move to our second topic. For our second topic, uh, it's it's related to the, the first, but it more sort of uh, bottom line where we stand. In the wake of the bar letter, what is really left open? What is, in fact, now not going to be revisited? Who can breathe a big sigh of relief and who, on the other hand, should not be uh, exhaling too prematurely. Where do things go now in terms of investigation, especially by other prosecutors' offices? Mimi, any thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I think the thing that is sort of most off the table, the thing that certain uh, people who probably had good reason to be worried before can now breathe that sigh of relief is being charged with, some kind of conspiracy to interfere in the election uh, by coordinating uh, conspiring with people from the Russian government. I mean, that, that is clearly off the table. So to the extent that people thought that Don Jr., Kushner, obviously Donald Trump and others might have been charged with that um, based on the Trump Tower meeting and other things, you know that seems to be off the table. That, that is something that, it, it, according to Barr's letter, Mueller took off the table. Now, again, I would like to see that in Mueller's words, not Barr's, but um, I I accept that. And that isn't totally surprising because I think a lot of the, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about a lot of the conduct that sort of went into that, what we were all talking about as possibly being, you know, in the awful but not unlawful category. And it may be that a lot of the information that Mueller gathered goes more into the sort of counterintelligence realm as opposed to the criminal realm. So I think that's a big piece that we still have to see. In terms of other possible criminal charges though, I mean, uh, the most obvious one is the spinoffs, I think regarding, uh, that, that would have come from Michael Cohen regarding obviously the campaign finance scheme in the Southern District of New York, but also things regarding the Inauguration Committee and other possible just financial crimes that relating to the Trump organization and the Trump charity, all things that that sort of Michael Cohen could be helpful on. And then, you know, we've heard a lot of reporting and we, I think, don't have quite as much information in terms of dealings with people like Jared Kushner and other countries, not Russia, but Saudi Arabia, for example. And, you know, I don't know where that stands, but it it seems like that is something that likely has been wheeled out to another component
0: of the Department of Justice. Maybe DNI. Yeah. What, what, but what, now, what about though, not conspiracy uh, with the election per se, but obstruction spinning out of it? Do we take Donald Trump Jr. to be free and clear, not simply of collusion charges, but of any obstruction related charges? For example, the formulation of the false story about the, the Trump Tower Russia meeting, it seemed like he was in the crosshairs for some of that conduct. Is that? Do we uh, assume all a, a dead letter now? Anything having to do with uh, with obstruction, even not including the president?
1: I think so. Um, technically not necessarily. we've seen Robert Mueller take a pretty narrow view of his mission, focusing on uh, Trump and Russia conspiracy matters arising from that investigation and then obstruction occurring within it by not finding conspiracy and leaving the question open as to President Trump with obstruction. It it seems to me that obstruction with Don Jr. would be all rolled up into that. But it is possible that he has handed that off to others as he handed off the Michael Cohen case, for example, uh, the Maria Butina case, some of these other cases that go to the heart of the case. So it is possible. I see it more likely if there are to be charges against Donald Trump Jr. to come out of the Southern District of New York's investigation relating to campaign finance violations. And that's one to watch. I think there's actually um, a couple things to watch in the coming days. One is the Michael Cohen campaign finance violation. Just a week ago, the judge in that case ruled that all the search warrants had to be unsealed except for 18 pages relating specifically to that investigation. Saying that uh, to disclose it now would reveal the scope of the investigation and subjects of the investigation. So that means that investigation is very active and that the judge anticipates some activity within 60 days. It's a limited universe of people who were involved in that scheme. Uh, That, of course, was the payment of hush money through Michael Cohen, checks written by Donald Trump himself and Donald Trump Jr. that were purported to be a retainer, but were in fact to repay Michael Cohen for the payments. That he made, so uh, I think that's one to watch, and I think the other one to watch is this investigation the Southern District of New York has into the Trump Inaugural Committee. They have subpoenaed documents for crimes ranging from wire fraud, mail fraud, money laundering, campaign finance violations, and don't forget they still have Rick Gates out there who is cooperating. He was the deputy chairman of the Inaugural Committee, pleaded guilty, and he also within that same time frame had an extension on his sentencing date of 60 days to allow him to complete his cooperation. And so I'm sure they're asking him questions about uh, what was happening to that inaugural committee. And in fact, there's been public reporting that some donors were asked to directly pay vendors, which sounds a little suspicious and funky. So um, those are two areas where I think we might see some additional charges coming within the next couple of months.
0: By the way, speaking of search warrants, so we learned in the bar letter that the probe involved no fewer than 500 search warrants. I've never been involved in a case, I wouldn't say, with half that many. I don't know if you had, but that sort of blew me away. And those are going to be, and they should be, able to be revealed. I mean, there's a lot of material now that we could move to immediately, that, we, that it, it'd be somewhat urgent to see. For instance, just Mueller's straight-out analysis. But the way it has been the process has now been organized by Barr and the department. They're going to go through this painstaking rule six grand jury analysis, which for our listeners, you know, means trying to determine if any of the material from the grand jury can now be revealed. That's going to take a while and could even lead to some court battles all and during that time, we are presumably not getting. Things that we could get, and we really, really do um, need to see. Mimi, what do you think about what happens now to Roger Stone? Um, look, I mean, he's charged. I, I, I don't think it should change
2: anything with respect to his case. I mean, he may have some motions that he's going to try and make, trying to use what Barr has said about you know Mueller's findings about no conspiracy with the Russians, no obstruction. But I, I, I mean, I don't really see those going anywhere as a legal matter in terms of Stone's obstruction case, that case seemed pretty solid based on, you know, what what we knew laid out in the indictment. You know, one thing about Don Jr. and resting easy and all this, I mean, Barb did a nice job laying out sort of different possible investigations. Just going back for a minute to the Mueller investigation and sort of how this ties together, while We can talk about how, why Trump wasn't interviewed and how complicated that would have been. I still don't understand why Donald Trump Jr. wasn't interviewed, at least as a witness. I mean, he was at the Trump Tower meeting. He was part of the cover-up story relating to that. So I find that surprising. And part of, you know, one theory had always been that he wasn't interviewed because he was a target. And um, as your listeners may know, you can't subpoena a target to interview. So if he just declined to, he would. But if he's a target, what, what's he a target of? What investigation? Or why else wasn't he interviewed? That, that's still a very open question to me.
0: Yeah, I really agree. And that had been my assumption. And of course, a target is someone whom the prosecutors formed some anticipation or expectation of indicting. And so if that was the reason what happened that whatever charge they were anticipating going forward on just sort of ebbed away. I mean, I I certainly didn't expect when everyone was saying the probe will be done tomorrow. That's one of the things that that led me to doubt it, because it seemed like there had to be some accounting for for him and his role. And just as you say, his not having been interviewed. Um, Barb, from your national security experience, you're probably the best um, positioned of the three of us to speak to just the counterintelligence aspect of that. How, if at all, I mean, this is a very big part of Mueller's charge, even leaving aside the conspiracy with Russia and the campaign, the worry or the investigation of whether Trump is somehow, you know, compromised or otherwise inappropriately positioned vis-a-vis Russia, whatever evidence Mueller developed there, how if at all will either Congress or the American people learn about it.
1: Well, it's quite possible that the American people may not learn about what he learned from a counterintelligence perspective, because some of that material might be classified. It might be that sources or methods cannot be compromised. But we do have some accountability there in terms of the intelligence committees in both the House and the Senate. That was part of the the FISA compromise, that we're going to have more oversight over the executive's use of intelligence collection in exchange for that power to collect intelligence, We get some oversight from Congress and we get the FISA court. And so uh, I think that the intelligence committees are entitled to a briefing on what he learned. It may be the case that some of what he learned is uh, shared with the public, but a big part of a counterintelligence investigation is really just to learn what our adversaries are up to so that we can defeat them. Sometimes the best way to defeat them is through criminal prosecution. But that's not the only way, and it's often not the best way. Sometimes it is allow them to keep doing what they're doing and just watch them. Sometimes the best strategy is to feed them false information so that they go off in the wrong direction. But learning about their capabilities so that they can be neutralized is the ultimate goal of a counterintelligence investigation. And so I hope that at the very least, Robert Mueller has learned how Russia went about trying to interfere with our election. He did reveal in those two indictments – The troll farm indictment that talked about the social media campaign and then the hacking indictment that talked about the hacking, stealing and staged release of emails will help give insights to those seeking to protect our elections in the future.
0: Okay, Um, that's all we have time for. We're going to end this episode, like all episodes of Talking Feds, with a listener question that we, uh, the feds, have to answer in five words or fewer, fewer as My uh, children have reminded me. And today's um, uh, question comes from a listener, Penny in Michigan, who asks Can Trump pardon himself? Uh, Mimi, you want to take a go at this first? Five words or fewer?
2: He shouldn't be able to.
0: Barb? No, but he will try. (laughs) That's better than I had. Probably not. Okay, thank you very much, Mimi Rokoff, Var McQuaid, and stay tuned. We're in a pretty dramatic patch here in the wake of the bar letter with a lot of important things that we're waiting to learn and just don't know. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. And don't forget to submit any questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or less, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Infinite Gain Productions, Dave Moldovan and Rebecca Jackson. Production assistance by Sarah Philpoom. Writing and research by David Lieberman. And the incredible Philip Glass graciously let us use his music. Special thanks to artist Lori Anderson for today's sidebar. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.